At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Return on India is the latest release in the Colossus family of podcasts. For full transcripts and more supporting materials, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you will find the full library of content from Colossus shows like Invest Like the Best, Business Breakdowns, Web3 Breakdowns, Founders, 50X, and now Return on India. If you'd like to stay up to date on all announcements for Return on India and other Colossus shows, make sure to sign up for the weekly newsletter again on joincolossus.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to Return on India, a deep dive series covering one of the most populous and promising economies in the world. Through conversations with central figures in Indian business, Return on India will unpack the details that matter for investors and operators. We will examine the unique cultural dynamics behind emerging demographic trends, and we will drill into key sectors by talking to the business leaders driving change. We plan to investigate the past, present, and future as we explore India's investment case. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and for this season's final episode, we decided to flip the table and interview Romine. We talk at a high level about our favorite lessons in the series, some great behind-the-scenes moments across the project, and what Romine will be monitoring from here. Please enjoy this conversation with Romine. All right, Romine, it's time for some reflection on the series. For me personally, I started with next to no knowledge on India, And there were countless stats that made it such a fascinating market to cover. Famously overtook China last year as the largest population with over 1.4 billion people. Fastest growing of the major world economies. But it was really the nuances to that data that really stood out to me and was enjoyable to learn about in our prep process, but also through all these conversations Little details, like just over 20% of India's population is actually transacting online. So I'll turn it over to you across all of the prep work that went into these conversations and then the conversations themselves. What really stood out most to you? The series was a ton of fun. I think we learned so many interesting things. 
that came out of all the conversations with the founders, the investors, and the literal architect of India's identity and payments ecosystem that spurred so much of this innovation. I think if I were to pare it down, Matt, it's three big concepts that really resonated with me. The first one is, and I think Sajid Bai said this really well in our first episode, which is India is a country of contradictions. So I like to think of it as India is a country of juxtapositions and in some sense, cognitive distortions. What I mean by that is the country is so advanced in certain ways, and then it's really primitive or early in other ways. Let's take the India stack, for example, the Aadhaar Identity Project, UPI. I mean, these are massively successful at scale deployments of foundational infrastructure that enable over a billion people to participate in the economy. It was really interesting actually hearing Nandan talk about that in our episode with him because it was a public sector and private sector partnership. And it really actually reminded me candidly how the US used to work together. So many of our most novel innovations, like things like the internet, were just a function of public sector research and then development to a stage where commercials made sense for the private sector to act. Used to work together that way. Used to work together, exactly. Right. So the scale of that on one side was just so fascinating and interesting. And then on the other side, so many of the stats that came out, one of them you mentioned, there's only 30 million credit cards in the country. The country has 1.4 billion people. Economy is changing, obviously, with UPI, but huge cash, paper, and pen economy. And then in some of our conversations, it came out that the physical infrastructure is really nascent. A great example of that was what we heard in our conversation with Sahil at Shiprocket. So the first takeaway that really came out to me was, it's just a country of juxtapositions. The second concept that was really fascinating to me is India is really for Indias. So growing up as an Indian, you're kind of well aware that folks in the West think India is highly homogeneous. It's not. You're well aware of kind of the heterogeneity. But the way that typically we grow up as Indians in the US think about India is there's 26 states. And so India is a country with 26 countries kind of in it. Definitely true. But the way that we don't think about it, at least the way certainly I didn't think about it, is India is really kind of four economies in one. So the locals call it India 1A, which is short for India 1 Alpha, India 1, India 2, and India 3. And it's really interesting when you actually break all those down. So India 1A, as we talked about in the series, 25 million people. And really what most people think of when they think of consumer India, highly advanced, adept to Western culture and products, native English speakers. India 1 is a little bit broader than just that 25 million. It's about 100 million folks. And most of the startups, interestingly, as we learned through the series, are built really for this population. They're targeted and framed as X for Y companies, meaning X for India. And it makes a ton of sense because this is the consumer population that's most representative of what we would think of you know, as Indians that would buy these types of Western products in the West. India too was the next 100 million people, digitally less fluent, aspiring for a better life. But one of the most surprising things to me in kind of this understanding of India as for India is is India 3 is basically the entire country. It's 1.2 billion people. And that was super interesting and exciting because it just broadens your mind to imagine what are the implications of that segment of people coming online you know, and brought into the economy. The final concept, it wouldn't be fair to say it was a surprise, but it was certainly really interesting. It was probably the most interesting was it was just so consistent to hear the unbridled ambition in every single one of our conversations. None of these founders, none of these investors, none of these operators, they were playing for being the best in India. They looked up to the West, they respected the West. In some of our conversations, they actually made it a point to talk about how India was more advanced than the West. But there was conviction and belief in their voice that over the coming decades, India is the place to be. And there was a genuine belief 
that they could build for the rest of the world and be world-class from India. And I thought that unbridled ambition was probably actually the most telling. And if we were to summarize kind of the entirety of the series in one sentence, to me, that was actually the most interesting takeaway. So I think lots of nuanced takeaways, of course, through all the conversations. But I think the three big things to me were India is really just a country of juxtapositions. India is for India is in one. And the unbridled ambition and energy is probably at an all-time high. The fourth category, India 3, 1.2 billion people. You put that in contrast to the US, basically 4x the size of the US and so much opportunity in terms of where you're starting from. But also on the other side, you referenced some of Sajith's quotes and something he said in that first episode, which I really loved was, India 1A is the US's 51st state. I love that quote. In a sense, it's so obvious, but it's so deep on so many levels. I just spent a few months actually in India in Q4 of last year, as you know, and I got to meet a bunch of the founders when I was over there. Some of them we had on the show, Sahil at Shiprocket, Nishay from JAR. And one of the really cool observations they shared consistently with me is they said, you know, Ramin, we know the US better than you guys know it. That was a kind of startling statement. Here I am sitting here being like, I grew up in the US. What are you talking about? I live there. You live here. But their point was, we grew up wanting to be people in the US. We watch Friends. We watch Seinfeld. We know everything about Hollywood, despite Bollywood being the biggest film hub in the world. You know, In our organization, we have about 100 employees. So part of the time I was there, I was meeting with our team in a casual setting. A few of the guys in their 20s, they showed up wearing Lakers jerseys. They were big Kobe fans or LeBron fans. It was just really cool to see. I think from a cultural perspective, Sajith is spot on that India 1A really is the US's 51st state. On the startup side, and I think quite candidly, this is a testament to the power of the internet as well. Folks in India, they know everything. I mean, they've listened to every talk from Y Combinator, every Mark Andreessen interview on product market fit. I mean, you name it, the knowledge base on startups is super sophisticated. It is not narrowed to who are the members of the Indian startup scene that we can look up to and pair our knowledge base to their knowledge base. It's truly how can we pick up the best of the world? So I think the combination of hunger, cultural attenuation, knowledge, super interesting. I love that quote. It was one of my most favorite in the series. Yeah, there were a few gems and that one definitely stuck out. We actually started planning this in the summertime of last year, summertime 2022, much different environment. It's actually interesting because Sajith, they just released the Indus Valley report for 2023. And I feel like that was somewhat of a catalyst, you know, in terms of reading it, getting very interested in this market. But the environment, and I could speak to the US, the US startup environment has really shifted over this period of time. Do you get the sense? I could not get as much of an idea, but from your experience, is the same thing happening in India? I think the sobering effect of the West certainly affected the Indian startup ecosystem. It's hard not to. I mean, a lot of Western VCs were just ripping the money in in 21 and 22. So that pace has slowed down significantly. And so that has a downstream effect. But what's interesting about India, which was an observation that was actually shared with me when I was in India, is how much India has actually been able to insulate itself from the global economy at the macro level. So in India, there's an index called the Nifty 50. It's the weighted index of the 50 largest Indian companies, obviously similar to the S&P or NASDAQ or so. It was actually up, Matt, in 2022, unlike the S&P and NASDAQ. So I thought that was a pretty interesting note, not just for the startup ecosystem, but how the economy actually had been relatively insulated from a global perspective. 
I think when we zoom out from a macro perspective, the excitement, I think, around the country is still very, very high. And it's because the bottom line is that India doesn't face the same types of economic headwinds or even general headwinds that we face here in the West. The macroeconomic, socioeconomic conditions, they're completely suited for long-term growth. From a macro perspective, one of the most staggering things to me that I learned through our series is that real GDP growth, of course, ultimately we'll see if it pans out, but real GDP growth could sustain around 7 to 8% a year for decades. And to understand how staggering that is, I mean, that would represent real GDP growth of somewhere in the tune of 3 to 5x over the course of the next 20 years. So to add fuel to the fire of that GDP growth, over the same time frame, India is projected to grow its population by 15 to 20%. You know, I think that was actually one of the other learnings that came out, which was just so staggering. The country's demographics are skewed super young. So over this decade, the prediction is there'll be something to the tune of 500 million people in an emerging middle class that can speak English and participate in the global economy. You basically birthed another two United States. So when you take those factors, you combine it with a growing purchasing power base, strong education system, favorable geopolitical positioning. India is the largest democracy in the world, so it aligns really well with Western governance philosophy, really large importing and consumption economy. India is really set up to be a pretty stalwart economic powerhouse over the next 10 to 20 years. I think one of the things that the startup ecosystem will really have to go through over the immediate couple of years, which I think actually will be really cleansing, is just making sure there's a renewed focus on profitability and core unit economics. It's almost laughable that we seem to have gotten away from that because it's so fundamental. But a lot of these Indian companies that we're invested in, Western investors certainly chased headline numbers. And I think we brought that out in a couple of our conversations. Kunal Shah said it really well at Gred, which is India is a Dow Mao factory. So I think a lot of the turn of this next leg in the startup journey as well is I think you're going to see a lot more focus on not just how do you acquire users, but how do those users actually translate in a country where the GDP per capita is $2,000. And if you take the top 25 million people out, it's $700 per person. It's not as exciting to say that you have millions and millions of users. What's really more important is how do you actually translate those millions of users into a sustainable enduring business? Yeah, I remember first hearing some of those GDP targets and the potential outcomes and thinking to myself, yeah, sure. And then actually looking at what you just referenced in terms of the demographics and the starting point in terms of it is not law of large numbers where it's tougher to grow. In many cases, these numbers are very small. And there's a big piece of infrastructure that's in place with the India stack that actually feels like it's leapfrogged a lot of what we've done in the US. And I was just amazed in terms of how that project got done. But also the architect behind a lot of this, Nanda Nilkani, just give me a little bit of the experience of what it was like coordinating with Nanda and talking to Nanda and a little bit more about his presence. I mean, before going into that, the India stack is just so interesting. It goes back to kind of that cognitive distortion point I was saying earlier, which is you think of Aadhaar, which is the identity layer. You think of UPI, which is the payments layer. You think of the account aggregator framework to really just open up APIs across the board for companies that want to tap in and take advantage of a data lake. And then you mix that with Geo, candidly making internet free basically for the entirety of the country. It's just a Cambrian explosion of opportunity. It was such an honor, quite honestly, to talk to somebody like Nandan who architected that. And that is not a exaggeration. I mean, this guy is referred to as the CTO of India. 
And he's literally done it all. I mean, a pioneer of Indian entrepreneurship. So many of the founders we talked to on the show would refer to 1.0 India startup was these large BPO firms, these business process outsourcing firms, the Cognizance, the Infosys, et cetera, of the world. And so here you take one person who's really in many senses a pioneer of Indian entrepreneurship in founding Infosys to a highly reputed public sector figure as well, navigating the government and architecting the entire identity and payments infrastructure in India. It's rare to see someone that has such a strong grasp of how the private and public sector work and being instrumental in both dimensions. It's even more rare on top of that to have the ability to so clearly articulate the components. And then it's even more rare on top of that to have a sense of grace and humility to share that knowledge with the world. When I was in India, I referenced that I was in India last Q4. I got to spend a couple hours with him one-on-one. It was just so interesting to me that he spent the majority of the time asking questions about me, my life, my aspirations, my dreams. And you ask, what was the experience of interacting with him? I think there are two interesting observations to share. A little bit unrelated to kind of the India story, but I think just two interesting observations to share. One is, I think there's just something really compelling about how the most knowledge-seeking folks are always the ones asking the questions versus giving the answers. And that was spot on who Nandan was. Nandan entered that meeting seemingly wanting to learn something from me, which not only sounds ridiculous, is ridiculous, (laughs) versus in the opposite way. Hopefully somewhere in there is a left-handed compliment for us as podcasters asking questions. The second, which was another fun anecdote, is it's always interesting to me how the most successful people in the world like him are just blazingly fast responders. I introduced him actually to two founders this week, and he responded back within three minutes of me sending an email. He's a unique guy. He's such a wealth of information and experience. But what I really appreciate about him was his sheer approachability and genuine interest in others. Once you get to know him, you start to understand how unique he is, but certainly how that uniqueness, I think, is required to accomplish the scale he has. The conversation that we had was the most on my toes and active that I was out of any of the conversations in the series by far. I mean, going intellectually toe-to-toe with someone like Nandan and keeping up and being able to ask interesting conversations and guide the conversation is just an intellectual exercise in and of itself. So it was an amazing experience. Out of the 150 plus you know, of these interviews that I've done with some of the most interesting people in the world, this definitely ranked towards the top. No questions, Bar. I love that anecdote about the connectivity and the fast responses. And he certainly has a track record of being able to get things done. And yeah, it was on full display. You could feel his energy, I would say, in that interview. Like it was a almost a mission driven energy of why it's important to do this, why it's important to speak about this. And you could get this sense of his urgency in terms of delivering that message. And it was really impressive. It's really neat to hear about the behind the scenes as well. In terms of some of the interesting lessons and takeaways from some of the individual businesses, I found ShipRocket to be an incredible story of a product pivot. What do you think about the different concepts and takeaways what we can draw away from some of these lessons from the private sector conversations, from the businesses, the startups, and what they've been able to do, and how much of that translates to different regions. Yeah, I think ShipRocket was the first conversation we had in the series that really set off a number of other conversations on how do you think about analog concepts in different regions. So I made a comment earlier that most startups were built for India 1A, India 1, 
the archetype of these companies was really X for Y startups. And what that means is you take a model from the West, usually the US, and you adapt it for India. So let's say Ola, for example, was the Uber for India. That's kind of the concept. These archetypes of startups obviously can capture value. They're a proven business model, a proven need, and they just need to be adapted for the new environment. But that actually starts to break down when you're building for a country where there's so much more room for growth in terms of just market structure. And especially when you layer on a technology inflection point like India's at. When that happens, I think you really have to look at the market structure from first principles. And that's really what came out in a lot of these discussions, which is X for Y startups at best won't capture nearly as much value as if they were natively built for the market. And at worst, they just won't work. And ShipRocket, I think, was the perfect example of this. And I'm glad we actually did that early in the series because it set off a foundational framework to really understand a lot of the other businesses that we talked about. Zero Dot was a really good example of this that I joked with Nitin that oftentimes we refer to, I mean, I just said it with Ola that we refer to it as the Uber for India. I was joking with Nitin that candidly, Robinhood should aspire to be the Zero Dot of the US. So I think that idea of really honing in on what is a native product that can work for a country makes a lot of sense when you start going towards the mass market. When you're going from an India 1A or an India 1 in any emerging market, then I think the X for Y model actually makes a lot of sense. So let's take a look at ShipRocket. In ShipRocket, the courier aggregation business has no analog in Western markets. And it's a critical piece of infrastructure to basically enable e-commerce for the Indian mass market. One of the lines that Sahil gave, which I really loved, was they started out as CartRocket and trying to build a Shopify for India. So they were trying to build an X for Y startup, only to realize that it doesn't matter if you can bring people online to purchase because there was no economical way to actually get products to them. So when you take a step back and you think about how many foundational pieces are yet to be built in India, for example, the number of unbanked people that aren't appropriately served, or the fact that the credit markets are super nascent in the country. I was chatting with a founder this past week that's building financial payments infrastructure for the country. And their argument that they were basically making is just imagine the economic unlock when you go from a one-to-one monetary supply economy, which really you can argue India is, low debt society, low credit society, very heavy cash economy. Imagine the explosion of economic opportunity that goes when you go from a one-to-one monetary system to introducing credit. And when you introduce credit, it's really exciting to think of what can natively be built for India because there's never been that kind of one-to-many unlock from a capital perspective. So when capital starts getting unlocked, Western models start breaking down. These startups, I think, over the next 10 to 15 years that are really going to create the massive amount of value in India, they are not going to have analogs in the West. So if you're a non-local investor, while the upside is going to be a lot more, it's actually going to be a lot harder to identify if you don't really understand the country at its core. And to understand the country at its core, you really have to understand not only the infrastructure, not only the ecosystem, the policies, et cetera, but you really have to understand the consumer. That's kind of the bottom line. Yeah, the data underpinning the differences in terms of money supply and leverage. I think I read China's around returns versus India, 1.6, 1.7. So there's a substantial difference there. But also what drives this is a lot of consumer psychology, consumer behavior. And Kunal really tapped into that. That was a really fun conversation. It's something that we hear about a lot, both internally working with Indian colleagues but also from the audience and mentioning or reiterating some of the things that were said. What about the culture might 
actually change in terms of consumer behavior? And what do you think is really set in stone and not something that you're going to see much of an evolution with? That episode with Kunal, the founder and CEO of Cred, was so interesting to me because I think in the Indian startup ecosystem, he's known a little bit as a philosopher king of insights. He delivered. Yes, he delivered that reputation. If going toe-to-toe with Nandan was intellectually challenging, going toe-to-toe with Kunal was conversationally challenging. He would spew off four or five nuggets, and you'd really want to double-click into all of them. And you'd have to kind of guide the conversation. So there were so many tidbits in it that were counterintuitive and unique. I think to your question on what of the culture has shifted and what won't change, there were a couple of insights that were really interesting to me. One is India is a very low trust country, but trust is heightened at the polls. So you're either hyper-localized in your trust, meaning you trust your family, or you're hyper-nationalized, which is you trust the mega brands and the conglomerates. I think when you layer that concept on the idea of going broad or deep in India, you actually understand why in the West, investors and companies have a certain way of thinking through building companies. In the West, you really focus on be the one company that does the one thing really, really well. Have the 10x product, go really deep in your industry, et cetera. In India, because it's such a low trust society, if you do one thing well and you build trust, you actually have the green light to do everything else. And it's why the Tatas and the Reliances of the world are in so many products. I mean, these guys sell cars, they sell internet. I mean, they could sell you food if they wanted to. I mean, they can do literally everything because people have latched on their trust to those brands. Consumer breadth is also really low. So it forces you as a company to go wide. There's just not enough of a monetizable TAM in your core space. I think the most obvious shift, and it'll take a little bit of time, will be the shift of vertical companies versus horizontal companies. I think over time, as consumer breadth deepens, I'm really interested to see how much of the market stays as these broad horizontal plays and how much actually shifts and what possibilities come with hyper-focus in going into one vertical deeply. Another trend that I think is going to greatly shift is this idea of men being the dominant consumers. I think Kunal threw out a stat that something like 7% of the urban female population has independent financial income. And this number is somewhere to the tune of 80 to 90% in China. Totally different. I think with more education comes more independence, comes more advancement, especially in that India 3, which is where the vast majority of the country resides. So I think the consumer base and the psychology of the country is going to change a lot. One of the things that I don't think will change is some of the cultural fabric that companies have in India. It's so inculcated in us of having a long-term communal mindset. And I think, candidly, you see that perspective in some of the companies we profiled. Shiprocket has been a decade-plus journey. Zerodha has been a decade-plus journey. Nazara has been a 20-year journey. And that focus on long-term value creation is, I think, why these businesses end up not only being large, but they end up being sustainable. They're really built the right way. Another thing that I'm really curious about and on the fence of on whether it'll change or stay the same is this quote that Kunal had about the Indian consumer. He said they're more like CFOs versus CMOs, chief financial officers versus chief marketing officers. CFOs are prudent, calculating, conservative. CMOs are dreamers and opposites. Today, Indian consumers are CMOs, but only in three things when it comes to education, weddings, and healthcare. And a part of me says culturally, it's so ingrained in us to be like the CFO, and maybe we will stay that way. But when I tie it to that unbridled ambition comment I made earlier, there's a part of me that really deeply believes Indian consumers are going to translate more and more 
into CMOs. I mean, that's the pattern the rest of the developed world follows. I don't really see a reason why that wouldn't be the case in the context of India. When I pair what are the cultural shifts that have happened, I think a lot of cultural shifts have happened because of Unlock, things like Geo, things like Aadhaar, things like UPI. But I go back and forth in my head on, are some of these things just so ingrained in Indian culture and they're so foundationally rooted, long-term, communal-minded, conservative, prudent, et cetera, on one side with this just notion of unbridled ambition and desire for consumerism on the other side. And I think it's just going to be really interesting to see what shifts and what doesn't shift. Yeah. And there's interesting pieces to the puzzle because you certainly have the consumer who I think the overall economy would benefit if you started to see a little bit more of a shift to that CMO type mentality. But from a corporate perspective, the CFO mentality, while maybe it slows the pace of growth up front, you are longer lasting. You do build a bit more of a foundation that's not likely to be wiped away due to excess leverage or something else along those lines. And you alluded previously to Zerodha and how they play a role in this and some others. So maybe you can dive into that. From a corporate perspective, from the businesses, do you think that there's going to be much evolution there? Zero, though, was such a fun one to do. I mean, Nitin and his brother, obviously, they're unbelievable founders. The business can be valued at $10 billion today. They raised money. I mean, $250 million in annual profit, not a dollar raised and just getting started. I joked earlier that I left it thinking Zerodha was not the Robin Hood of India, but Robin Hood should be aspiring to be the Zerodha of the US. And not to pick on Robin Hood, but I think that analogy is actually pretty illustrative because if you take that kind of apples to apples comparison, in many senses, Western fintech products have kind of been built on the worst impulses that consumers have. I mean, these products have been built with all sorts of virality drivers in them, notifications, referrals, excess leverage, margin, etc. The zero dot has literally none of that. If anything, it's actually the opposite. Big banners come across the product or in their education centers telling users not to trade. And it's really because the mindset that they took that the longer a trader is in the game and the more candidly you can make a trader an investor, the longer that they can be a customer. I thought that was a really good example of a byproduct of not having taken capital. Capital is obviously an accelerant for businesses. It's not good or bad on its own. But one thing that does happen when you take capital is you start working for the capital and not necessarily the business anymore. And in a perfect situation, those are aligned, but they can be really highly misaligned as well. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting when having that conversation with Nitin was constantly hearing the underlying tenants of the business that were really aligned with building for long-term value creation as opposed to, we took a bunch of venture capital, we need to go 3x by our next board meeting or to raise the next round. And all that really matters is we're living to fight another day to raise the next round. And at some point in time in the future, we will have raised so much money that all the early investors will have made a bunch of money. Hopefully, we have some outcome where we can exit and everybody kind of wins. This is an approach which actually says, let's actually turn all of that on its head and let's just focus on building a damn good business. And if we do that, what are the outputs that actually come of that? It was very similar to some of the underlying pieces that also came through in the conversation with Nitish Mithersane from Nazara. He was building frugally and thinking long-term almost by necessity. I mean, the capital wasn't there in the early days to heavily fund that business early on. He wanted to build towards his long-term vision. He had to establish a business that was fundamentally sound. But I think when you build like that, it's the only way you can endure for 20 plus, 30 plus years in business. 
You have to constantly reinvent yourself. You have to adapt to the market conditions. You have to take a view on how those foundational pieces you've developed can really be wings for the future. You know, the business instead of anchors, candidly, that can sink your boat. I think both of those founders and companies are revered in the Indian startup ecosystem as really companies that have done it the right way. And I think a lot of that has to do with this long-term value creation mindset. As we look forward, I think one of the things that stuck with me is going back to that consumer psychology monetization of the biggest piece of India and how that actually happens. What's the likelihood? What's the strategy? So maybe you can just tap into that. What were your conclusions around the potential to actually see through the potential here and all the excitement? Is monetization actually going to play out? That's the big challenge. I think that's the big challenge, especially for consumer products. I think for B2B products, there's a lot of good examples of companies that have really succeeded, whether it's building for the domestic market, more often it's actually building for the international market. But the monetization challenge is really real. It's really easy as an investor to get enticed by the fact that a company is showing up at your doorstep and telling you they have 30 million users in a span of two years. And when you live in the United States, your first reaction to that is how the hell did you get a 10th of our country to basically use this product in less than 24 months? And in a sense, look, business model, sustainability, et cetera, aside, that is an unbelievable feat, an unbelievable accomplishment. The challenge with that, though, is getting too overly fixated or too anchored on that. I mentioned earlier, per capita GDP is 2,000 US dollars. You take out the top 25, 30 million folks, it's 700 bucks. So 2% of the population controls 70-80% of the discretionary spend. So really to monetize appropriately, I think you have to be really creative. And I think you have to be thoughtful on who you're catering your product to. So there were a couple of conversations that we had where I think this really came out. One conversation was in chatting with PK at Atlan. Most of the great SaaS companies that have come out of India, she's building a great SaaS company, have actually not been built for the domestic market. They've been built for the international market. So historically, in India 1.0, you thought of build for the world, outsource it to India, outsource the talent to India. And it was a labor arbitrage play with Infosys, Cognizant, et cetera. Now that's been flipped on its head. It's actually build from India for the world. The interesting thing about that is it's not just wording and cute rephrasing. It really actually speaks to something deeper, which is you can build for the international markets from India and do so with an incredibly competitive cost structure. And that's going to be a huge advantage for years and decades to come. Indians are figuring out how do you build world-class products, but on razor-thin margins, which has really interesting implications and ultimately is going to have really tough implications for companies in the West that can't compete with that same cost structure. One takeaway was building B2B products and building them from India for the world is really an interesting way to actually generate a lot of monetization. Atlan is a newer type of company we obviously featured in our series, but you've got companies like the Zoho's, et cetera, of the world that have really done a good job here of monetizing and building at scale SaaS companies. Another piece we talked about, if you think about the B2C side, and we flushed this out really in our Kata book discussion with Ravish, is we learned of the importance of shifting to something that makes and drives money for the consumer. It's really difficult to sell. SaaS products or to sell products to Indian consumers, they don't want to pay for it. You have to focus your product on something that is going to make them money or drive them money faster. So 
in our Katabuk conversation, we learned that Katabuk had a similar kind of story, amazing Dalmau factory, millions and millions of users. But they've taken that capture of the market and said that that is not going to be how we actually monetize with SaaS products, et cetera, and selling them to small business owners. We're going to focus on lending. And the reason we're going to focus on lending is it's going to be critical to the monetization of the user base that we've brought online. So building the product and having the software was a wedge. We needed to do that to actually make this market exist and bring people online. But now we're actually going to be able to say, how do we take the people that we've brought online and how do we actually monetize them? And this was ultimately, I think when you think of monetization, especially on the consumer side, this was something that came out of the conversation with Canal and what they're focusing on cred that I think is just, again, worth highlighting and a really important insight is this idea of breadth versus depth. Most companies in India think about depth out of the gate, which makes sense if you're an early stage company. But if you think about breadth at the outset as well, especially given India is a low trust economy, I think it has a potential for very, very interesting implications. So in short, Matt, the monetization challenge is real. I think where most investors get caught is they get enamored by incredible growth numbers. But in India, if you're looking to build from a B2B perspective, I think you have really good opportunity if you're using the advantage of the cost structure in the country and you're building for the world. I think if you're looking on the B2C side, you really have to focus on how you make and drive money for users. And I think if you kind of put B2B, B2C, kind of the labels aside, I think there's going to be a lot of companies that build just ground up infrastructure, not dissimilar to ShipRocket, that are going to crush it. And they're going to be the foundational layers of basically how that economy functions. And so I think what I'm most excited about when I think about companies that are actually have the highest potential to monetize, it's B2B SaaS companies that are built for the rest of the world. And then it's just infrastructure products, financial infrastructure products, logistics infrastructure products that are going to have a small take rate on this GDP growth that we were referring to in the earlier part of the conversation. Yeah. And you could definitely see the potential for a loop there where you have the rest of the world spending into India, creating jobs, even if that cost structure doesn't come up, even if wages stay relatively flat, if there's more and more of those jobs which fall into that category, that's more consumers with dollars to spend. And it can certainly fuel that emerging middle class, which I think every emerging market looks to develop and see mature. And the demographics certainly support that just in terms of the age of the population. It's an ecosystem that is evolving very, very quickly. How do you plan to monitor it from here? Well, this podcast has been such an interesting way to help us do that. I think telling the stories and unearthing the perspectives of investors, founders actually in the game and not academically reading a report is the best education. I think these conversations, it'd be funny, we would end the recording and you were on many of these where the founder or the investor would tell us, thank you for taking the time. And my immediate reaction was, thank you for taking the time. I mean, you're the ones really educating us on what's going on in the country. And so I think vehicles like this are so important to be able to tell these stories and really unearth interesting perspectives. Aside from that, I think you really need to be in the ecosystem. The last time that I took a trip to India before this trip in 2022, was 2017. And that doesn't sound like that's actually all that long. It's only five years. But at that point in time, if you track the chronology of the India stack and what we talked about in our series, Geo was just kind of becoming a thing. UPI and Aadhaar were just starting to take off. And so the country is evolving at such a fast pace that I think if you want to be a player in that ecosystem, 
You need to interface with founders, investors over there. You need to make trips over there. I think a lot of the cognitive bias or distortion of how people think of what India really is, is you kind of have this mental image of what India was 20 years ago. You land in India. I was lucky to spend time not only meeting with some of these founders, but really being in their offices and just observing the energy of young India, which is really what's going to drive the country forward. I mean, so many of the countries worldwide we talk about, they're ticking time bombs from a demographic perspective. India is the complete opposite. So when you live and feel that energy, there's nothing quite like it. I think if you really want to be a player in that ecosystem, you have to latch your hooks in and you have to commit the time to actually go there. It's on the ground. I love it. You asked the question to your guests, what's the bull bear case for India? We'll close it out with your answer to that. What is the bull case, bear case in your mind? Yeah, I thought you might ask me this question when we wrapped, which is why I tried to crowdsource it throughout every conversation. Jokes aside, the bull case is this entire podcast. Amazing tailwinds, demographics, internet usage, technology knowledge. It's an English native country. Per capita income is rising. From a governance perspective and political philosophy perspective, it aligns with the West. Unbridled ambition. And we're seeing it on the ground. Most institutions have shifted significant energy to India. My former firm, McKinsey, called it India's decade. I think there's a lot to be excited about. I think the bear case is the social issues that can hold the country back. Women's empowerment, for one. And I think if the entirety of the country can't catch up, that's going to be the bear case for India. We talked about it a little bit earlier, which is 1.2 billion people in India 3. So that's ultimately going to be the massive segment to solve for. That's going to be the crossing the chasm moment for the country. And in many ways, that's the innovator's dilemma opportunity for the country as well. I think you're going to have to think about that country and its market potential and its economic potential, its social potential, everything bottoms up. So I think that if India can't get out of its own way or come up with infrastructure and systems to really bring everybody else up, India 1A will continue to be great. India 1A actually from a economic perspective will start to chase what the average American actually is and lives like. The top rungs of India live better than we do in the US, you could argue, because they have the same levels of economic opportunity and the cost to live in the country is obviously a third of what it is in the US. A third of, by the way, I'm in Atlanta, so a third of in Atlanta, probably a tenth of San Francisco and New York. So I think the bear cases, can the country really collectively push together? But it's an exciting time. And I think on merit and on weightage, if I had to think of kind of the bull case and the bear case, I'm very squarely 90-10, 90 in the bull camp and probably 10 in the bear camp. I love it. Well, this has been a blast. Thank you very much for taking us on this journey. It's been just an awesome project to work on. And the conversations were excellent as well. So thank you, Romine. I appreciate all the work and I think all the listeners do too. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been so much fun partnering with you guys and Colossus to do this and bring these stories out for the rest of the world. And so it's been an honor and it's been such a fun project collaborating. To keep learning about the topics discussed, head to joincolossus.com where you'll find our curated list of resources, a transcript for this episode, and a library of conversations on investing and business. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.